Welcome to Right Night. This is one of my older interviews from Sounds Esteem from 2012 through 2014, or one of the interviews I did at a convention along the way. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a little bit of retro interview from myself and others. Right Night is a talk show with published authors, writers, and content creators discussing both the creative and technical sides of writing, as well as the industry surrounding it from novels to screenplays to comics and more. And now, here's your host, author Travis I. Sivart. And we're here with Trevor Crafts. Hello, Trevor. How you doing? Hey, how are you? Glad to be here. Thank you. Oh, I really appreciate you coming on. It's a lot of talk about Lantern City and what you guys are doing, so uh, I- I'm glad to get you and be able to just ask the basic questions without having to, you know, click on a screen or something complicated <laughs> like that. I appreciate it's, it. Thanks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you're creator and executive producer. Is that yes, correct? Yes, that is no. 100% correct. Now, when you say creator... What's that mean? Came up with the um, idea, write every episode? No, came up with the idea. Um, it was an idea that I had uh, a couple of years ago and sort of evolved as as most story ideas do. Um, and uh, I had been producing another um, pilot uh, comedy western called Smokewood, Nevada, um, which is sort of a combination between Tombstone and The Office, um, nice. which is very funny, which is uh, we're working on right now. Um, and uh, I had... One of my cast was Bruce Boxleitner, and um, I cast him as the uh, the grisly old cattle baron. Um, <laughs> and he doesn't like it when I call him the old cattle baron, but it's true. Um, Grizzly's so, okay though. <laughs> <laughs> he likes grizz- grizzled, but uh, but uh, old not so much. But that's fine. Um, but uh, anyway, so we um, we hit it off. We became good friends um, through the through the production of the pilot, and um, obviously Bruce has had a lot of. Uh, a lot of success in episodic television um, and right. also in sort of epic episodic television. And I was looking for Very a partner, true. somebody that I could, you know, could not only sort of new people in Hollywood and new, you know, the process of television, um, right. but also was, you know, somebody who could write. Um, obviously, Bruce has got great novels, Frontier Earth, um, you know, and its sequel. And, you know, just an overall, you know, honest honest guy. And so we started this collaboration on Lantern City and we spent, you know, a couple of days together just trying to hammer out story arcs and, you know, the themes and some additional characters. And I had sort of set up a lot of the, the core. Um, and then Bruce came in and we, we worked together to fill in the edges. And, um, and then, the, and then really where, where it really exploded um, in terms of size of the world that we were building um, was when I brought in um, a good friend of mine, Matthew James Daly, um, who's our, who's our writer. Um, And uh, Matt took our, you know, pretty heavy seed of an idea and grew it into an absolutely huge tree um, with branches that go every which possible direction. So So what else has uh, Matthew written? Matt and I actually worked on, um, on a, uh, 
a documentary um, back in 2009 mm-hmm. on the 1921 Tulsa, Oklahoma race riots, of all things, oh. um, and uh, it won an Emmy. So, um, you know, what better guy to uh, to bring back on to a project? Matt and I have been friends for years, and uh, he's a great love of um, it's great love of genre work, genre fiction, um, and uh, it was a great opportunity for for him to sort of you know really go to the edge and see just how far you yeah. can take an idea. So it's been um, it's been a, a great collaboration for the three of us. Well, I tell you what, earlier you said story arcs and themes, and, and I'm I'm loving hearing those words because uh, sometimes when I talk to people about what they're doing, they don't understand a story arc they're just telling a continuous story as opposed to a beginning middle and end right and not just per episode and i, but, I think uh, that yeah i mean i think that all of the of the good science fiction television that there's been um it, you know the creators do have that in mind i mean obviously mm-hmm. you know bruce was on babylon 5 um you that's know that's actually I, a prime example i use for a lot of people the five-year yeah. story arc british television does it a lot but american television treats it like the plague the Office had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Two seasons and a Christmas special. <laughs> arguably one of the greatest sitcoms in the history of television. You know, yes. and, and I, I think that that's, you know, to, to a certain degree, you know, uh, creators, you know, I think the creators of Supernatural, um, and I don't know those guys personally, but, you know, you have an idea in your mind and then something takes off. Yes. And it is a little tricky because, you know, you have to, it's like, okay, great. We've done a really good job. Now I've got to come up with another season because the network wants another one. <laughs> I you remember know? watching certain series, and you could watch from episode to episode how they changed things in the series because of viewer response, mm-hmm. and not always for the best. I feel like they yeah. were losing the purity of what they were doing, and as much as I like to be heard as an audience, I'm still watching their story, not mine. But And also, in, you know, the entire – sort of model of of television is really starting to change. I don't want to get too industry specific because I know mm-hmm. this is a steampunk show, but sure. but it's but it but it does it does make a big impact. You know, so many more more networks. USA is a prime example. In their drama division, they're moving away from a um an episode contained model like a law and order. Oh, you know, cool. you could watch any episode of Law and Order you don't have to know the characters. You don't have to know the mm-hmm. storyline, what happened the episode before or after. CSI yeah. is another you know, good example of that. House, perfect example. You know, But now audiences are craving 10-hour movies. That's basically <laughs> what we're making now is, is 10-hour motion pictures. Well, we could probably or, thank HBO for their and, input and on indeed, that. I mean, and indeed. And it's know, long overdue. Carolyn Strauss, who is now the executive producer of Game of Thrones, who was head of HBO um, production and, and head of HBO for a while, um, you know, she had a huge hand in that process. I, I met with her about Lantern City. Um, you know, we had some great, uh, great ideas that were exchanged about it. And, and you know, she's definitely one of the pioneers in The Sopranos and, and you know, um, The Wire and bringing right. these, these long format shows it's you know it's almost a callback to the miniseries, yes. um, and I I don't think anybody really can argue that television production and you look at the big boys you know you look at a Game of Thrones um, you know is rivaling even some smaller budget motion picture. I mean, oh, I definitely at, agree. At definitely five million dollars an episode or seven million dollars an episode, depending on who you ask, um, <laughs> you know, even a show like House of Cards on Netflix. 
um, is about $5 million an episode. You know, the, the, the boundaries of how people watch television obviously are breaking down left, right, right and center, um, which is That's driving good. everybody in the industry crazy. But it, but for creators, um, and creators of original content like, like myself and Bruce and Matt, you know, it really gives us an opportunity to, um, to show a, a, a wide audience you know, a new idea that's, that's original and, and a little daring. Um, I think, you know, I, I think the steampunk community in particular will appreciate it. They're a very creative crowd and to watch the same old thing again and again, they're happy that you're coming around. Well, and, 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 you know, I came to steampunk, um, when I was in college and I didn't even know it was steampunk, but I was writing a story, a sort of illustrated first person journal called journal of a clockwork God. And it was about a 16th century mechanist who basically invents the world's first clockwork robot, not the most original idea, but I was in college. So every idea you have in college is the most original idea. Um, And I know that they're, uh, you know, I think JJ Abrams just optioned something, um, uh, steam, a steam powered robot. Um, and, nice. uh, you know, sort of story, but I mean, the, the idea of this sort of clockwork robot, I, I became immersed in, in sort of the visual style and the visual culture of, you know, of steampunk and it never went away. And, and so once yeah. steampunk came into existence and arguably somewhere between five to nine years ago, were you part of the steampunk community before? Not really. I mean, I, you know, in terms of, I love history. It's one of the things that Bruce and I and Matt also that we mm-hmm. all have connected on on a personal level. We both all love history and all of us have a real love of alternative history as a genre of fiction. And so, you know, I mean, Bruce will say often, you know, when we go to panels or what have you that we, you know, we really love, you know, he loved Jules Verne as a, as a kid. He read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That was his first, one of his first real, you know, novels that he read as a child. Right. Um, and, you know, an atomic powered submarine. I mean, that's an all, you know, it's become true, but that was alternate, that was alternate futures, alternate histories. And, you know, certainly the difference engine and, and a lot of other stories have, have delved into that idea. But, um, for me, you know, it was that, it was that wonderful pairing of wood and brass. And, you know, it's, it's that, it's visual aesthetic, lush visual aesthetic that I, you know, I, I fell in love with and could never really get out of my head. And as I was building this story, the sort of prototype to Lantern City, it was, you know, it was always a love story and Lantern City at its core is a love story. Um, it is really about how far you'll be willing to go to be with the person that you love the most. And that's a pretty powerful idea at its core. Um, and that's really what drove the story. And, and, but I saw this rich community of people, um, at comic cons, at, you know, other things. I'm obviously a fan of genre fiction and to right. find a community of people that are so creative and so immersed in a world that has no outlet, um, in, in the media space. Mm-hmm. I felt really, there's no other community that I want to be involved with because as I was thinking of the idea of Lantern City, it was always designed to share with the rest of the steampunk community. It was, it's a community, like you said, artistic, it's makers, it's creators, it's people that want to see this, this 
beautiful craftsmanship back in our society. Yes. And to, you know, having the, the, you know, some of the features that we have on the show, once we go into production, you know, we're, we're critically important to me having makers be able to submit prop designs, lighting designs, uh, you know, whatever. On that our was forums. actually one of the questions I had is, um, actually let me back up and, and start yeah. at the beginning. Why don't you give a brief breakdown of what Lantern City is? Because somebody who's just heard about, you know, oh, Lantern City, so it's a city yeah. with lanterns. <laughs> but, you know, it's so a, why don't yeah. you, yeah, break it, it is down? A, the story of Lantern City is, is it's a first of all, it's a it's an episodic television series. Um, okay. It'll be thirteen episodes. It's currently in development, and um, w- the story of Lantern City is is really it's about three people from our world, modern day. San Francisco is where we have it set okay. um, that get transported to this alternate earth of Lantern City via a magic lantern. And for those who don't know magic lantern, I'm sure this audience knows very well what a magic lantern is, but just in case um, really wasn't, was a 18th century slide projector for lack of a better term. Gotcha. Um, but essentially the story revolves around uh, three characters, as I said, um, and it starts off as, a, as really as a missing persons case. Um, and this woman, Rachel Kirsten, has gone missing. And uh, there's a police officer, a great detective um, of the San Francisco Police Department, Miles West, who is investigating her disappearance and has firmly dis- cemented in his mind that her fiance, uh, Max Adams, is the person who has, you know, killed her, hidden her body, um, and... In fact, nothing else could be farther than the truth. Rachel has completely disappeared, and Max is absolutely just devastated. Rachel is the reason that he gets up in the morning. It's his; she is his everything. Gotcha. And um, so, essentially, you come to find out through the story that Rachel is a lover of, of Victorian things and style, and finds this magic lantern in San Francisco. And when she turns it on. She sees this beautiful city that's projected and her love of, of Victorian culture sort of wills her into the picture and and she's transported to Lantern City. And, gotcha. you know, and Max in his in his love for her. To, with Rachel and his love for her, he sees her in the image and he falls through the lantern. And then Miles and, will go through because he's a bulldog with a bone. Exactly. So it's really it's this it's this. It's this idea of will and and desire and need that allows these people to 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 go through. But the lantern is not a stargate. You know, there's no dial right. on the other side that allows them to like, okay, I, I just have to find this series of symbols and then I can dial myself home. Essentially, they're just there. And not uh-huh. none of them come in the same place or the same time. Time moves differently in Lantern City than it gotcha. does for us. So essentially, when Rachel arrives, or rather when Max arrives, Rachel's already been there for a little less than a year on her okay. own trying to survive. And then Max arrives, can't find Rachel. Miles West arrives shortly after, can't find Max. So it really then starts to change your personality. If you're somewhere and you don't know how to get home and you don't know anything of the culture or anything of what's going on. And it is a right. walled city and it is a very, um, 
you know, totalitarian state that they live in. It is ruled by the gray empire. Um, and so essentially, you know, you have three people that need to change to survive and how far that's one of the other ideas and questions of the show. How far, you know, what, what would you do to survive? How far would you go? And, once you've gone that far, the questions really then start to come up as the series yeah. continues. You know, if you've changed your entire personality, is the person that you love going to love you back because of what you've had to do to survive in this world? And it's not a nice place. It's, you know, one of the things that Bruce and I talk about sometimes is that, you know, oftentimes there's a very whimsical element in steampunk. Yes. Um, and, so you know, you're going to be going dark and gritty on this one. This is dark and gritty. This is okay. Game of Thrones meets steampunk. This is that's, Boardwalk Empire meets steampunk. That's, that's okay. That's really sure. highly favored right now in our drama, our, our entertainment drama. Yeah, absolutely. So and I think, I think you know, with this kind of a, a look and a lush world that we're building, um, you know, it's really it's really part of this whole concept. Is we can definitely bring people. We can probably, you know, the show will go on the air because of steampunk fans. It will stay on the air because of everybody else. Right. Because right. while we are setting this in a steampunk world, and it is true steampunk, and we really want to make sure that we don't screw up the best, you know, genre in science fiction. <laughs> um, we don't want to be those Hollywood guys. But that's, you know, for us, you know, people are going to be drawn in by the characters. And, so, you know, that's why Matt spent so much time with the characters, you know, well, that's, that's the most important part. If you look at, you know, Mad Men, Downton Abbey, Game of, of Thrones, it's the characters that drive every one of those stories. Even a walking dead. I mean, yes. you know, people don't, I mean, some, certainly there's a group of people that watch walking dead cause they love watching zombies be killed and kill people. And I'm oftentimes in that camp. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, it's really about the human drama of these, of these survivors and yes. their interactions. And again, it's, a lot of those similar themes we will see in in Lantern City. You know, I'd mentioned the Grey Empire and the current ruler of Lantern City is a young man named Killian Grey. And Killian is very charismatic, but very evil and very, uh, you know, despotic. But he falls in love with Rachel when he sees her. And so, ah. you know, it, it's it's a it's this sort of ebb and flow, this push and pull um and as we've just are about to release our illustrated novel, our first illustrated novel, which is actually a prequel to Lantern City, the television show, you find about, out about Killian's great grandfather, um, and, uh, and Isaac Foster Gray, who, who started mm -hmm. Lantern City. And so you start seeing the world unravel in a very big way. And so, you know, as the series comes to, to television, as we continue to develop it, through this book and most likely subsequent books, um, right. we'll be able to uh, have everybody fully understanding of the history because it's a big place that Matt, Matt and, and uh, Bruce and I built. It's a very, very big world. That's cool. So, Going back to a previous question there that, this, that yeah. I segued away from is, uh, so are you looking to draw from the steampunk community as a resource of whether it's ideas or makers submitting Absolutely. pieces, etc.? Yeah, and one of the, that, like, as I said, that was – Really, from the inception of the idea, that was really critically important to me was knowing that we were going to have the support of the steampunk community. Um, we reached out to – we've got um, four really incredibly talented uh, 
steampunk uh, artists, um, Tom Williford um, from mm-hmm. Brute Force uh, Studios, who has been a tremendous help um, to us on all fronts. Um, we do a lot of panels with Thomas. We'll be at Comic Con this year, actually, with Thomas. Right. Um, and uh, um, uh, Dr. Grimm, big supporter of ours um, and, and been a great help. Um, Tom Banwell um, actually designed the Gray Empire uh, Lantern City Guard helmet um, that you can find on our website and on the Facebook page. Nice. Um, and Art Donovan has been, a, has been a, a big supporter of ours as well. So, you know, other than, you know, these, these makers, I felt it critically important, like I said, to open the, open the field. Lantern City is really all of our show. It's not designed to be a couple of people sitting in a room that ask a PA to find out what the steampunk thing is all about, really. And they come back with a Google image search and there's your show. <laughs> you know, it's, it's designed specifically to be, we have a forum on our website which is a workers forum. And mm-hmm. it is a place where um, the best of the best designs, be it jewelry design, costume designs, weapons, whatever, transportation, lighting, anything, um, we will actually use those in the production of the show. And we'll feature the artists every week um, that the show is on. You know, we'll feature them specifically on our website this is do a little artist's, you know, artist's bio about the person that we selected. That's so it really cool. gives people an opportunity to be involved in what I sort of call this multinational steampunk gallery. That where make a huge difference with, your you know, crowd. you can see and we've gotten amazing work already. I mean, even from the early, uh, you know, early work that was being submitted, we have just gotten some fantastic Fantastic designs, um, lighting designs, weapon designs, all sorts of things. And, and, you know, maybe you'll walk into, um, you know, the scene will be, um, you're in, uh, Martha Ellen Gray, um, is the mother of Killian Gray. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll be in her, in her bedchambers and she's putting on a brooch or she's putting on a, an earring. And there's a moment where we sort of focus on that earring or that brooch. Um, and, uh, Mira Furlon is the actress from Babylon five. She'll be playing Martha Ellen gray. Nice. And you know, that brooch or that earring or, you know, that piece of lace or however it is, you know, that might come from, from one of the people in our workers forum. And then we'll be able to highlight that artist. Um, we're not reproducing anything. The mm-hmm. rights of the pieces remain with the artists. Um, so there aren't any, uh, there's no money exchange, but it really well, allows. That would be beautiful because that'll allow them, you know, when they're at conventions going, this piece was on Lantern City. Exactly. And that's one of the things we wanted to share. We want this to be, why close off, you know, the, Imagine the collective imaginative faucet of everybody that's a maker in the steampunk community. It would be stupid for us to, to shut that down. We, we want to encourage it because it is, I mean, it's again, all about the community. It, it's, it's what will drive you and keep you. It's the loyal and it's people. What you guys have, it's what we've all built. I mean, all of this people that have lived it, all the people that go to TeslaCon and Wild West Steam Convention that Diana Given produces and, and Eric John Larson. I mean, these, mm-hmm. these people, um, for, for TeslaCon, which is a great convention that Bruce and I were at. I mean, you know, everybody spends time, money, energy, talent building their, you know, their personas. And why not highlight that and, and really applaud that? Because it is, they are, I mean, stuff's bananas. It looks so amazing. So let me ask you, 
have you got any have you got a network yet or release dates or anything like that we are between a couple different buyers okay um, and you know the thing to to remind people is that um Stephen King who is obviously a very prolific writer um, I've heard of him popular very rich guy um uh, his show under the dome is just airing now on CBS that was in development for three and a half years mm-hmm. and he's Stephen King Right. So we're actually moving incredibly quickly in terms of development of the show. We're just, you know, it takes time, it takes energy, and it, you know, it takes patience. And that's, you know, for right now, I mean, it's, it's, we're sort of at this wonderful critical mass stage. Um, we've got a lot of interest, um, from the fans and the community. It's really important that everybody continue to like us on Facebook, continue to follow us on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, as as uh, another one of our actors said um, when we were in uh, Long Beach um, at the Queen Mary, um, uh, Raphael Sabarge, who was playing the uh, leader of the workers' revolt, um, and uh, he said, you know, liking liking on Facebook is really casting your vote. It shows network executives and and potential buyers and funders that we vote for this show. We put our we're going to watch. And, it, and it's just it's that additional layer of um, of of comfort and and confidence because yes. I've heard it from bands or authors or whatever when you yeah. have to go and sell your product to a big company, Facebook, Twitter, previously MySpace, not so much now, yeah, but those numbers count. Yeah, and and for us it's definitely um, it's important. We have a strong base. We have one hundred and seventeen thousand Facebook fans. We've got about four hundred and 30,000 Twitter followers, I think, right now. Yes. So our base is growing. We Bigger numbers only put us in a better place. And so it's, you know, it's important for everybody, like I said, to just keep liking us and following us. That's something that uh, we'll, um, we'll definitely do. So Excellent. Well, one final question here, and then we'll wrap it up for you. So if uh, Lantern City had a official drink, Alcoholic or otherwise, what would it be? What one drink would summarize all of Lantern City? Oh, that's a really good and difficult <laughs> question. I uh, try. I wasn't. I wasn't thinking in that. Uh, in that. In that terms, but um, I think. Wouldn't be a pina colada, I'll tell you that. It would not be a pina colada. It would not be a pina colada. Um, I think that it would probably be um, – it would be a bourbon drink with a a, a little bit of, of ginger ale and a smoked ice ball. Very cool. Something in that – something in that range. Now on your uh, workshop thing, you're going to see 50 people submit drink recipes. <laughs> Which is okay with me. I like to drink, so it's all fine. Absolutely. It's all fine. So um, – yeah, I mean it's been it's been a wonderful uh, experience developing this. We're super excited about Rise, the illustrated novel that's coming mm-hmm. out on the nineteenth, and um, we'll be at Comic Con. We're two panels in Comic Con, um, one with Tom Williford, um, and uh, that'll be on Friday, uh, uh, the nineteenth, um, and we have another panel on um, Thursday, the eighteenth at Comic Con, and we'd love to see everybody there. And we're also um, uh, signing copies of Rise, um, and that'll those will be available at the Brute Force Studios booth, 
and also um, at the Section Studios booth um, at Comic Con. And That's Section cool. Studios is the is the is our concept illustrators. Um, they've been partners of ours pretty much since the beginning, and have come up with all the great concept art that you'll see on LanternCityTV.com and on our Facebook page um, as well. And uh, they'll be there signing as well. So we're r- real nice showing at Comic-Con. And uh, we are also hoping to go to New York Comic-Con for all the East Coast people um, uh-huh. in uh, in October. So stay Very tuned good. for details on that one. But uh, definitely Comic-Con and uh, copies of Rise are, uh, are, are going to be available for everybody. And we're doing some great giveaways as well. Um, Rise posters and mm-hmm. uh, some Grey Empire pins and uh, good stuff, so you're not going to want to miss it. And that was Trevor Crafts with Lantern City and so many other things. Up next is D. Clarence Snyder of Tick Comic Book fame and other things, and this is when I ran across him in, well, listen and find out. Okay, so we're here at Portsmouth Public Library, Friends of the Public Library, Minicon. And I happened to run across an interesting guy who I'm going to let him give his credentials real quick. Hi, this is D. Clarence Snyder. I'm uh, currently a science fiction writer writing a series of cyberpunk novels called The Bright Future, available on Amazon, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so we get the plug in. Um, previously, I've, uh, I've worked in uh, a variety of real career fields, uh, you know, because writing's not really a job. Um, I have law enforcement background. I have, you know, network engineering background. That's a good background for the cyberpunk. Uh, that is exactly right. it. It's 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 background. It works out great for the cyberpunk background, especially where I write a lot of crime stuff in there. Um, but the the big thing that's kind of incongruous is I actually used to work in comics on the comic book series The Tick, where I was on the production staff for about ten years. I was uh, part of the writing staff for about five years uh, with a partner, Mark Sylvia, and um, he and I were the lead writers for the last two years of that. See, I think it fits fine because I've known engineers and their sense of humor, and I've known <laughs> law enforcement and. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Both of those, both of those keep, um, careers do have a tendency to have, uh, let's say, bit. absurd sense of humor or yes, unusual I sense of humor. Appreciate laughing when it's not appropriate. <laughs> well, everybody needs to laugh, especially if it's not appropriate. That's sort of the point of laughing is to be inappropriate. Um, so, what do you want to talk about? Because, of course, I, I grew up with the tick. Everybody wants to talk about the tick. But so let's. let's... I, I want to plug what you want to plug too, because you know that's the bottom line of being spoken to, right? Oh yeah, of course. So uh, let's do both. Okay, so well, let's get the let's get the interesting stuff out of the way. Uh, the tick, because that's what uh, everybody that wants to talk about. <laughs> well, I you know I I love my, what I'm doing now, and uh, you know somebody asked me recently, what if it's only ever a hobby and doesn't make commercial success? Would you still like doing it? I said, yeah, because this is what I enjoy. Absolutely. I mean, I have all my real career field backgrounds, but writing is is one of those th- writing and storytelling is really one of those things that I've I've just loved my whole life. Um, you know, the first story I wrote was actually a piece of Star Wars fan fiction. I wrote it nice. in 1977. Nice. And it was a... Oh, were you six? I, yeah, I was about, I was yeah, about six you, or seven years old at the time. Age, so, yeah. And um, <laughs> it was actually a comic series, and it was a slave revolt of the astromech droids. That's pretty cool. Um, it, was a, it was a revolt in which the astromech droids rebelled against their pilots and killed them all. Wow. And so here I am, seven years old, and I'm writing Slave Revolts of Star Wars. That's cool. <laughs> so, you know, I wouldn't say I was insightful, but, I, you know, I remember it very vividly, drawn in crayon. <laughs> but, you but, know, uh, it's still one of the great themes of sci-fi, is uh, the robot 
Oh, it, it, really, it, it, it really is. It can be. Um, there is actually one of the backstories in The Bright Future is uh, a series of high-profile, good network television AI wars mm-hmm. in which various small conflicts are declared with these AI governments that were installed to dispute to uh, deal with uh, dispute resolution. Between so in your cyberpunk, you have whole AI nations in There were. Uh-huh. Um, they've all been supplanted by puppet governments. <laughs> run by uh, humans? Run by humans, um, you know, conveniently installed by neighboring countries. Um, basically, the idea was the United Nations would install artificial intelligence governments to deal with dispute revolutions, uh, uh, dispute regions like the Kuril Islands. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize the Soviet, or, excuse me, Russia and Japan <laughs> Are to this day still at war. It'll flop over again. (laughs) Come back. Uh, Russia and Japan are actually at war right now, from the Second World War over a series of islands between them called the Kuril Islands. We're American. We don't need to know what the rest of the world is up to, do we? Oh well, that's you know that's exactly it. But you have regions like that, regions like Kashmir, the Falklands. Right. um, So the idea was the United Nations would end these wars by installing artificial intelligence governments, so the humans were taken out of it. Well, it's, you know, then you get television and whatnot, and corporate nations go, oh, look at the invasion of this one world, new world order. we got to stop that. And so, you know, very similar to the Spanish-American War, which was fought in newspapers, they, um, they convince governments to go in and, with real armies, remove the AI, the evil AI government. So how much and, commentary and is there on social media, indirectly or directly? Uh, quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Oh, God, um, I love that because I'm all about, yeah. Yeah, indirectly, indirectly a lot. I don't do anything specifically to, um, to, to comment specifically on social media. Um, big data is one of the big things that I do. Gotcha. In, uh, there's a, a, minor, a minor moment in my latest book, The Incubus Gambit, in which... The, uh, the characters actually turn off their internal cell phones and one of them suddenly notices that all of the advertisements that he sees all over the city are gone ah. because they're actually just projected onto his cell there's phone. There's a shadow of they live. <laughs> it's, not saying know, taken from, I'm just saying there's similarities in the sci-fi themes that we, oh, yeah. that we play well, with. I mean, the big thing that I'm doing with Bright Future is, is doing this plausible, you know, it's, like it's it. designed it to be a plausible future. People should recognize a little bit of the reality they come from in in some of the things that happened there. Now, let me let me totally skip to a different topic. Sure, Tell absolutely. me about the script I see on your table here. What am I seeing? Oh, yeah. So um, so what this is, is a uh, little known fact about me, is I write all of my notes, all of my writing notes, are actually written in Tengwar. The, you want to uh, take a picture of it real quick? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, you can take going. all the pictures you want. So they're actually written in, in, in Tengwar, which is, um, most people will know it as the writing on the ring from Lord of the Rings. People, uh, you're going to make me put my glasses back on, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, it's, I happen to wear the one ring today and then a Superman spinner ring. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. To go with all my other geek stuff. Um, true geeks will know that Tolkien was actually a language professor Mm -hmm. and he invented a number of spoken languages and he invented two writing systems to write his spoken languages one of them was Tengwar Tengwar is actually a universal writing system and it can be used to write any language as long as you have a mode for translating I write in English 
but I but I use the Tanguar script. That's very cool. Um, it allows me to take notes about people right in front of them because so few people are able to read it. They have absolutely no idea what I'm writing. And if they do read it, they deserve to read it. That's uh, actually this sign that you've taken a picture of actually translates to coming soon the Tanguar edition. And at the bottom it says, "If you can read this, you are a nerd, and my kind of people." Nice. Nice. <laughs> the um, I am because it, one of the books that I want to do in the future, I actually want to release the book completely in Tanguar because nobody's ever done that. That'll be cool, even if it's just an e-copy or something. Yeah. Oh, actually, it will have to be print because doing it as an e-reader, the font won't line up. Oh, that's true. That's true. So it will be a print. In that only. case, you might as well do it hardcover, leather-bound. I yeah, <laughs> they, I, they they cost me a lot to get I know, copies. I know. Of. <laughs> but yeah, that actually is is kind of the intent is to be the the first book to do that. So that's pretty cool. But let's shift over now that we talked about the interesting stuff. All right, now that we let's talked go about to the interest. uninteresting stuff. Let's talk about tick for a second. All right. We or Talk about the tick for we can talk about the tick for for a couple of minutes. So you got a bunch of books here, which I can purchase any or all of them and have you sign them. Right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I you know my autograph isn't worth that much. I will sign anything. I will sign body parts. I, nice. I nice. will sign anything anybody puts in front of me. If I find one, I will bring it. In. <laughs> so just make sure it's not the one you dug up from under the. Oh, That's you know, right. Never mind. That's right. <laughs> the ones that I haven't buried yet, and no fingerprints on them, mine or theirs. I, you know, I'll, I'll get That's out my exam gloves. We'll be good. Okay, so with Tick, I, I see all these magazines, or yep. magazines, comics, etc., etc., etc. Periodicals. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the right word. Um, so what do you have to do with it? Because, you know, in the 80s, I read the Tick, and then the 90s had the animated, and then early 2000s had the live action, and so, now they're doing another live action. Uh, yes, I've heard that rumor. I haven't. Uh, I've heard that they're actually shooting the pilot now. Uh-huh. Um, I have not actually confirmed that because I'm no longer associated. How do you with feel them. about it? I really. First of all, I love the character. Okay. I, I have to love the character. I'm actually le- legally required to love the character because that's where I got my start. <laughs> it's in the contract. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually in some of the contracts. Yeah. The but only platonically, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're not talking about that. No inflatable ticks. <laughs> so uh, I actually. Um, Actually, when the tick originally came out, I was actually still in high school and um, went on and did like some real work for a while. And um, then I came back when the live, when the uh, animated series was going on, and I actually started working for the publisher, um, doing prepress stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was at the time all they were doing was reprints. Um, I was also doing copyright searches for some other stuff that they were doing. Uh, but the, the the since the animated series was on. I said, you need to be publishing new Tick comics. And because I was a salaried employee, they didn't want to have anything to do with me. They didn't, they didn't even look at it. They didn't even review my stuff. Um, but what they did do to shut me up is they hired Eli Stone to do yeah. Big Blue Destiny. Ah. So that's right around the time I'm, I'm working for the, uh, for the, the production company. Um, then we started having backup stories. And I was sitting in the editor's room pitching ideas for backup stories. That sort of started happening. Um, I, fu- I got hooked up with my partner, Mike Sylvia, and we pitched a story under his name, which suddenly was really good. So they didn't want it when it was for me, but it was from him. It was suddenly, suddenly fine. And we started writing backup st- stories for him. And the result was I wound up being on the writing staff for about five years. Uh, eventually, Mark and I became the lead writers of the Tick comic book series um, around... Uh, 99-2000. Actually, 2000 is the year that we were officially became the lead writers, which was our year of specials. Right. Every book that year was numbered one. 
except for the massive summer novel spectacle number two. Wow, feels like the '90s again. It, well, it was. I mean, the Tick is a parody comic, right. so we were parodying everything we could. And one of the things that we wound up parodying was the the idea of the new title and the three issue series and everything's numbered one to get new readers. And so that year, every single book had a new title. You know, it starts with the, the Tick's Big Year 2000 special. How the readers? go for that did they follow along well enough or were they like oh no not you too the the ones the ones who are with us and hooked with it they got it okay. they got that we're making fun of it gotcha. um, I was actually publishing I was because I was doing pre-press as well I was actually writing on the inside front covers the order in which you needed to read these books nice so I, as a reader so, I appreciate that <laughs> so it helped but I wasn't allowed I actually editorial wouldn't let me say first one, second one, third. I couldn't use those words, but I could put them in order. So I put them in publication order. There you go. Which was the order that they were designed to be read. And it was actually a series leading up to my first series, the first official series, The Tick Colors. Gotcha. Um, one of the things that I, I like to say about The Tick is, um, and my involvement in it, is there are five Tick issues that are more historically important than any others. I've written four of those. The first one is Tick Number One, First Appearance of the Tick, right. Ben Edlund. I, I mean, hands down, that's the one. That's sure. that's what it's in. Um, it was a black and white comic. Ben Edlund wrote a twelve issue series. He ended issue twelve on a cliffhanger. I wrote issue thirteen, resolving the Ben Edlund cliffhanger and setting the book up for the rest of for the rest of the things that happened after it. Now, that issue was written after a lot of other stuff had, sure. had happened, but. The cliffhanger needed to be resolved, and I actually talked to Ben Edlin in San Diego and said, you know, Ben, we want to do this book. Is that okay with you? Is there anything you feel like we need to do? And he actually said, well, this is internet radio, right? Yeah. He said, I don't give a fuck. Do what you want. I trust you guys. <laughs> His exact words, not mine. <laughs> I trust you guys. Wow. So I, so I, I wrote issue thirteen. Um, it does have a fancy title on it, pseudo tick thirteen. In this concept that Ben is someday going to come back and write a thirteenth issue of the comic, he's not. He said he's not. He has no intent. So I wrote issue thirteen. I wrote the issue that transitioned the tick from a black and white co comic into a color comic, the tick color number one, gotcha. um, complete with, you know, Dorothy in Wonderland, uh, I'm sorry, Dorothy and Oz kind of, uh, kind of thing. It starts out black and white, they go to the mythical uh, land of Thrakazog where everything's in color, and then Thrakazog comes with all of his little gel gelatinous zombies come through the uh, portal and they splash on the Tick's world to make it color, and the book's been color ever since. Um, I wrote the issue that shows what happens when the Tick takes his costume off. Oh, I haven't seen that one. The tick color number five, his his costume is actually removed. It is lost and found by a bunch of other people who then put it on thinking they'll have the power of the tick. And we, at the end of this issue, reveal what the tick looks like without his costume. And I will tell you, flat out, it is the only thing it could be. He looks exactly the same. <laughs> Just face colored. His, he, um, in... In uh, Tick Color Number Six, he actually returns the costume to a costume shop in New York. 
and it's hanging in the it's hanging in the window, and he walks away looking just the same as he ever did with, with the little antenna, with the little antenna and everything. They're yeah, just the flesh color. No, no, no. It's no, no. It's the same color. It's oh. blue. He's blue underneath. Oh, oh. oh. He looks gotcha. exactly okay. the same underneath. Ha <laughs> Gotcha. And then the other most historically important issue that I've written at The Tick was The Tick Golden Age number one, in which we reveal The Tick's origin story, including his real name, Dr. Jeffrey Whitebread. <laughs> now, I will point out, and it's very important to say this, that origin story was immediately retconned. <laughs> Gotcha. In true parody fashion, we have to retcon the character. Um, a writer after me retconned it. They d- demonstrated that the Golden Age Tick, Dr. Jeffrey Whitebread, um, was the Golden Age version on Earth Other. On Earth This One, the Modern Age Tick, um, he actually encounters De- Dr. Jeffrey Whitebread Tick, and they determine that they're from other worlds, and they go to find out what happened to Dr. Jeffrey Whitebread on this Earth, so that on Earth Normal, Earth Prime, Earth One, and I think actually that's the title, Earth Normal, Earth Prime, Earth One. Um, and they find that Dr. Jeffrey Whitebread, in fact, is dead of Lyme disease. Ah, that's great. Immediately retconned, and it's important because, you know, not to sound too much like a man from Bravos, but a tick has no name. There we go. A tick needs no name. That's true. Very true. Well, anyhow, let's wrap this up so you can get back to your Absolutely. Now, let's see. I, I don't know if I should call you David or Clarence or, or what, do you, what do you want to be called? What do we uh, wrap it up with? Well, generally, uh, people who are talking to me, I go by David. That is my first name. Um, with the with the Bright Future series, uh, I am going by D. Clarence. Um, you know what? Speaking of the Bright Future, now you yeah, mentioned absolutely. something before I start. Before I turn the machine on and start interviewing, yeah. And I'm just wondering, can it be mentioned on air or is it under wraps with the future of one of your books? Oh, oh, it can absolutely be mentioned on, Let's mention on there. The, uh, oh, wait a minute, which book are we talking about? Okay, let me just say this. There's been a shortage of cyberpunk movies. Steampunk stepped in, kind of filled in that gap, oh, and I'd no, like no, to that's... see more coming Oh, yeah, back. okay, I get it. That's, that is, that is a, that's a wishful hoping. Okay, very good. <laughs> So, <laughs> the reason the reason for the name change. Okay, so let's talk about the name change because I'm rebranding, and people who know me from comics do know me as David. Um, I D. Clarence Snyder is what I'm going by in in writing prose fiction, and the reason for that is um, it is my intent. I am capable of writing scripts. I'm capable of writing screenplays. I'm actually rewriting the Armor Heist as a screenplay in the hopes of possibly getting a movie for it. Um, it is at this stage just purely. Hopeful, wishful, Very good. could happen. But um, there is another David Snyder. David L. Snyder is a visual effects producer for... Um, he was visual effects producer on Blade Runner, the quintessential cyberpunk film. Also, I learned recently Demolition Man, another cyberpunk film. So, so he's a small name. You can easily and, grow out of a shadow. Yeah. No. And so um, one of the things in Hollywood is they like everybody to have a unique name. Nobody goes by Clarence, so I figured I'd preempt him and go ahead and change Nobody my name ahead of Nobody goes by Alfredo Tortellini either. <laughs> and well, then you're delicious and talented. There, there is that, but <laughs> yeah, see, it's hard. It's hard to tell the cop that that's who you are when your driver's license says something else. So. <laughs> and you've got the colander on your head for the flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> yes, yes, the flying spaghetti monster. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't ascribe to being a pastafarian. However, I am. Uh, really familiar with it, shall we say? <laughs> I, do, I do find the philosophy appetizing. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. I won't pretend to be good at puns, but... Uh, <laughs> you, wrote, <laughs> you wrote for the dick, man. You can't be bad at them. Well, I don't know that anybody could truly be said to be good at puns. 
that's true. There's kind of a hmm. Anyhow, although I have been called a cunning linguist. You have been. <laughs> you tell her not to talk with her mouth full. Okay, I'm on my way. Been a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much. You know what? Plug a website. Uh, yeah, uh, you can uh, follow me through uh, my studio site, which is www.powertwinscomics.com. Uh, that is my studio site. I do actually occasionally put up free web comics there as well. Very good. And don't forget, you can also find them on Amazon. Okay, guys, we'll be right back. Thank you for joining author Travis I. Sivart and the other writers, content creators, and all-around amazing people for our discussion here on Right. Join us again soon, and until you do, make sure you create with passion, enjoy the journey, and remember, every night can be right now.